Sorry, it's me again. Um, yeah, I'm going to read from Luke 14, um, verses 1 to 24. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you or you don't have one at all, there's some at the back, and feel free to take that with you as a gift. Um, yeah, hopefully you have been reminded or know for the first time how much we really care about scripture and um, the Lord and prayer. And so there's no better way than before we sit under his word to read it together. Um, So yeah, I'm going to read chapter 14, verses 1 to 24. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, there was watching, there they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just." When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city. And bring in the poor, the crippled, and the blind, and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and there still is room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. I'm just going to pray before Travis comes up. Um, Father, we thank you for your word. Um, We thank you for the clear um, gift that it is for us, the church. And Father, I pray that as Travis comes to, um, yeah, teach us and lead us into more deeper understanding of what you've written. Um, Father, would you bless him? Would it be your words, not his words? And would you give us wisdom and insight into what you are saying? Um, And ultimately, maybe we'll be blessed through it. Amen.
Is it on now? Great. Sorry, people listening to the podcast, all 12 of you, you're going to miss that brilliant introduction. <laughs> Do you check the views? I don't check the views. Um, I just assume most people are here. Anyway, uh, yeah, it's just church is a picture of, uh, of what eternity is going to be like when we all get to be at a banquet together, which is what this, kind of what this passage is, is about um, today. So it's one of the more uh, popular, maybe more um, well-known parables of Jesus. But I think the thing I love about the passage we're looking at today is it sets this really popular parable of Jesus at a dinner that's very weird and very awkward. Um, I, I don't know if you guys uh, like follow movies and TV like, like I do, I probably watch too much of it, but the, the scene of like the awkward dinner is kind of like a common setting. Like you see it in a lot of different movies. I think, uh, I'm trying to think, American Beauty is a common one where the dad and the mom are like having a fight and it's really like a weird one. Um, Meet the Parents has a great awkward dinner scene um, where Ben Stiller is trying to explain how he can milk a cat. Um, one of the ones that I really love is actually from a Saturday Night Live sketch where a guy um, is at his girlfriend's house with their family for dinner, and they're just kind of small talking, and the family is talking about how they do movie night, and they talk about how they just saw Coco, and how it's like one of the best animated films ever, and it's Oscar-worthy or whatever, and the guy's response to them is kind of like this like weird, it's like his vibe doesn't match their vibe, and he's got like this weird smile on their face, and they're like, are you okay? And he's like, you're kidding, right? And they're like, no, 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 it's, it, was really, it was a really good movie. He's like, yeah, but it's not the best animated movie. He's like, that's Shrek. And, and, and they're like, I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess Shrek's good too. And so they end up getting this whole like sketch scene is just them getting in this fight about how Shrek is the best like animated movie that's ever been made, right? And so the scene, the awkward dinner, right, is, is a scene that is, is like a, is a, is a setting that's used a lot sometimes for comedy, sometimes to build tension and stress and drama, um, to point out relational stress between characters. And so we are actually looking at one of the more awkward dinners you'll ever see in Scripture. And Jesus is invited to the house of this Pharisee. And it says even in the first verse here that the ruler of the house and those with him were watching him carefully. Like in the first sentence, we get this picture of like Jesus has been invited, but not because they like the guy. It's because they want to scrutinize him. And they have him like under, there's already this social tension that exists from the, on, from the moment Jesus walks in the door. And so what we see in this passage, what we're going to look at today, is there's kind of three episodes over the course of the dinner that set up the parable Jesus then tells about the great banquet. And in these episodes, we get to see Jesus exposes and uncovers the hearts of the Pharisees and the religious leaders and then tells them this parable that says the kingdom of God is totally different than than, than who you are, than the type of people you are, than what you think, than what your concept of what you think the kingdom of heaven is like. Um, and it's really powerful and pointing. I think it's going to be really encouraging for us. And so before we get going, we'll go ahead and pray for us. And then we're going to kind of look at these three episodes and then the, the parable Jesus um, teaches. Father God, we welcome you into this space and this time right now. Um, God, I recognize that we are looking at your word um, your word is truth. It is a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path. Um, it is uh, sharper than a double-edged sword. It cuts our souls and spirits in two and exposes it to the light. Because of your word, God, we're made more like Jesus. Because of your word, we know about him, and we know the gospel, and we can believe it. And so, God, in this passage we're going to look at today in, in Luke 14, this um, this moment in time where Jesus um, has this really weird dinner with the religious leaders of his day. God, I pray that we would, um, you'd teach us and shape us through it. God, where we need our own hearts to be convicted and changed, I pray you'd convict us and change us. May our hearts be soft and not stiff and stony and resistant to what your spirit wants to do in our lives, but responsive. God, where we need encouragement, or maybe even where we need to be encouraged to continue to press on in the ways in which we are living like Jesus, I pray that the passage in our time together would be an encouragement for us this morning. More than anything, God, we want you to be glorified, and we ask that you would make us more like your son, Jesus Christ, this morning. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, episode one of this dinner. Okay, Jesus walks in. 
Um, it's the Sabbath. It's a day of rest. It's a holy day. He's being scrutinized by the um, Pharisees that are there. And then this happens. Verse 2, it says, Behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy, which in our terms would be like edema, like a cardiopulmonary condition, swelling of the hands, arms, feet, limbs, labored breathing, that kind of thing, right? And so this person would um, kind of be sticking out a little bit, right? Like physically, um, you know how like on some uh, uh, toilets it says, not every disability is visible. Like this one is 100% visible. Everyone knows this guy's got something going on. Um, and so Jesus calls attention to this man and asks a question to the room, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? His question is met with silence. No one says anything. Now, the thing that's interesting if you read about this story and what most scholars believe is that this man, the man who had dropsy or edema, more likely than not, wasn't some guy that just walked in off the street. More likely than not, because of the nature of it being the Sabbath and this being a dinner that this guy's hosting, this man was probably a member of this Pharisee's household. And we don't know if he was his father, his brother, his son, or if he was a member, sort of, he's like one of the kind of household servants and just kind of part of the household in that way. But there is a relational connection between the Pharisee and the man with this condition. And if you look at a lot of other stories throughout the Gospels, when people invite Jesus into the home and they have someone with some sort of health issue in the house, they're usually inviting Jesus in because they're like, hey, my son or my daughter is dying or my servant is dying or they have this condition, they're sick and, I can't, and we can't figure it out and Jesus come save us type of situation. Not so with this Pharisee. He's just kind of having dinner over, like we said, to kind of scrutinize them, to look at them, to judge them, to, to, to try to dismiss them, to, I don't know, grill them. And he's got no thought of this man. So this man's in the room and completely being ignored. Jesus, unlike everybody else, calls attention to him and says, if I heal him, are you going to have a problem with it? And no one says anything. And so, reading on, it says that Jesus took him, healed him, and sent him away. If you read the Greek when it says took him and heal him, it means that Jesus physically touched the man. So we don't know if he like hugged him, laid hands on him, or what it looked like, but there was physical contact between Jesus and an unclean person in the house of a religious leader on the Sabbath. Awkward dinner. And then he says to them, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. So Jesus heals this man and then says, uh, he, he quotes the law, which had exceptions of things you could do on the Sabbath, because Sabbath is meant to be a day of rest and no work. But one of the ex exceptions was, if an ox or other translations say a donkey or your own son fell into a, a hole in the ground, you'd get him out, right? That's allowed. But you're not okay with me healing this man, right? And so he uncovers in this first episode the Pharisees' hearts. You see, the Pharisees had a self-righteousness that was more important to them than this man's well-being. The heart of God, which is a heart of compassion and charity, especially towards the least, the last, and the lost, is not the heart the Pharisees have. They're way more concerned with upholding and keeping the Sabbath than they are with this man's well-being, right? First episode, first thing Jesus does to make things weird, right? Second episode, verse 7 to 11. Jesus then tells a parable as everyone's going in to dinner. So they're all coming in to sit down at the table now. If you want to put yourself in the scene, everyone's coming in. And as they're coming in to where the dinner's being served, they're all starting to politic and jockey and try to figure out, where's my seat? And the way it worked is at dinner, you'd have the host, and then from the host, the most important people going to the least important people kind of around in a U-shape. That's typically how it would Go. So everyone's walking in, they're trying to figure out, okay, I'm probably seated higher than this guy and this guy and this guy and this guy. I'm probably not as distinguished as important as these guys. And me and these three were probably a push. So maybe, like, if I get here, then maybe I'll be, you know, they're trying to figure out how to, like, 
basically seize as much honor in this situation as they can. And what Jesus does is he tells them a parable. And this parable in particular is actually kind of interesting because it's not so much a spiritual parable as it is just practical wisdom. Jesus says, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher, and then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. In this parable, Jesus is taking practical wisdom to communicate a spiritual truth, which is that honor cannot be seized It can't be claimed, it can't be grasped, you can't make it for yourself. Honor is given by someone more honorable than you. That's how it works. And in a spiritual sense, ultimately, it comes from the Father. Honor is given by God. And so the last line, which is pretty famous, I'm sure you've probably been in church for a while, you've heard it before, the idea that those who uh, exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted, Jesus is communicating to the room that it's much better to have a posture of humility than it is to try to promote yourself, which is really funny in our own world today of social media and whatever else about the idea of self-promotion and the idea of how I communicate myself. I had a job interview a couple weeks ago and it was really weird because I'm trying to think about how do I be honest but also make myself most worth the role, right? Like it's, it's this, it was this kind of weird sort of conundrum to think through. And that's the world we live in. We're always trying to present ourselves. We're always trying to, to achieve a certain status and to, to, to have a certain place of honor. The conundrum that Jesus puts everyone in the room in is that he exposed their self-centered and proud hearts. Their desire to seize honor when really honor is given. And I, I mean, if we're going to just kind of exercise holy imagination, I don't know what everyone's like at the dinner at this point, but it's got more awkward, right? Everyone's coming to their seats, and now Jesus is like, hey, I know what you're doing. It's actually better to do it this way than this way. Um, I, I don't know if they like, were like, man, bump this guy. I'm still going to try to get the best seat possible. Or if they're like, well, maybe I should take the lowest seat to see if the host will honor me in front of everyone. Or if everyone's probably like, oh, weird, and just kind of like took whatever seat was nearest. I don't know what happened. But again, it's just Jesus is just kind of turning this whole social engagement into a very weird space. And then we have the third episode, which comes in 12 to 14. And this is, this would be the weirdest if not for the parable he then concludes with. In verse 12 it says, he said to the man who invited him. Okay, so again, setting the scene, everyone's at the table. Jesus then talks directly to the host at the table in front of everyone and says this. When you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. So in front of the whole room, Jesus is saying, hey, next time you do a party like this, don't invite any of these people. And at this point, everyone's insulted. Because it's like, who are you? Like, what are you doing? Right? The host is ashamed because Jesus is shaming him in front of his guests. The guests are ashamed because Jesus is saying, you shouldn't invite people like this. And everyone in general is probably pretty uncomfortable with what's going on. He continues on saying, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, the social outcasts, the least, the last, the lost. And you will be blessed because they can't repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Jesus is saying, like, look, when you invite these people, you're only inviting them because you want them to invite you. This is a social contract. You don't care about them. You just want, you're just kind of doing this social engagement thing. And you expect them to invite you to yours, theirs for, for, and to reciprocate this, you know, nice thing you're doing. He's like, if you really want to be repaid, if you really want a blessing that matters more than just another dinner at someone else's house, invite people who can't pay you back. Take care of the man with dropsy who's in your house, who you ignore, then you'll be blessed. 
weird, right? Again, third time Jesus is calling out the pride of these people. We know that things get awkward because in verse 15, it says this, when one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, so someone's kind of been around, he's hearing what Jesus is saying, he says this, he says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of heaven. Now at the time, this was pretty common, just like, statement of blessing, especially among, you know, religious leaders, like, when the kingdom of God comes, blessed is everyone who's going to be eating and drinking there. Um, it would be the equivalent of going to, like, Christmas dinner, and your uncle's had, like, too much to drink, and is expressing his political opinions, which aren't shared by the majority of the room, right? It's like, that's the situation that's happening, and so someone's like, hey, so supposed to get snow next week, huh? You know, like, that's pretty great, you know? And they're just like, how can I take this conversation and take it literally anywhere else? And so that's what this guy's trying to do. He's trying to just, like, diffuse it. And so he's like, hey, this generally widely accepted holy statement about, like, blessed is everyone who will be in the kingdom of God. That'll be a nice change of pace for us here. And he kind of throws it in there. And so Jesus responds to it. He's like, yeah, you know what? It's going to be a great, it's going to be a great feast but I don't think it's going to be what you think it's going to be. And then he begins to tell this parable. All right? So that's, that's Jesus setting the table, if you will, for the parable, right? Three times he exposes the self-centeredness and the pride of the Pharisees in the room. The, firstly, by not, um, by kind of calling them out and exposing the fact that they don't care about this man with dropsy. Secondly, by pointing out the fact that they're trying to, like, politic and figure out where their status is in the room compared to everybody else. And then thirdly, by saying like, hey, this whole dinner is a sham anyway, <laughs> right? And so this guy's like, talks about the bread, eating bread of the kingdom of heaven, and Jesus shares with him this parable. And I'll read it here for us one more time um, together. So let's start in verse 16. But he, Jesus, said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. Now, the way it worked, the way these banquets worked, is it worked kind of like a wedding. You would send like a save the date or an invitation, like we're having dinner on this day. I'm doing a thing. You know, just keep your schedule clear. And people would RSVP the way we do today and say, I plan to be there. Count me in. I'm coming. All right? So when it says that, he goes out and says, hey, dinner's ready, and people begin to make excuses. It's not because they were, like, surprised by the fact that the dinner's, that there's this banquet this guy's throwing. It's because they've created new priorities of things they want to do in their life, right? So he goes out and tells people who have said they're coming, we're ready for you now, come to dinner tonight. And it says that they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, which at the time is a lot of oxen. It's like a sign, I mean, a sign of wealth. It's like, yeah, someone who's very well off socially and financially can afford this many animals, right? So this is a very socially elite person who's saying, like, I've got these oxen, I've got to go check them out. I go examine them, please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. He doesn't even have to be excused. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. The same four type of people that Jesus just told the Pharisee to invite when he throws a party. And the servant said, sir, what you have commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. That is one weird dinner. What is happening in reality, the spiritual reality of what's going on, is Jesus is at a dinner, a banquet, a feast, but it's a feast of the proud. He is among proud people, self-centered, self-righteous, self-absorbed people. And when this man talks about the kingdom of God and the banquet that'll be happening there, Jesus is saying, 
it will be a really good feast, but that feast is for the humble, not for the proud. And then he begins, I think there's a couple of ways in which we can kind of see how it is. I think the real truth of all of it and the real truth of the story that Jesus tells is the feast, the banquet of God, heaven, is not a place where proud people are going to be. And it's not because proud people aren't invited. It's because they don't want to go. That's, I think, the most poignant lesson of it. It's like, not that Jesus said, hey, you're not actually invited. He's saying, no, where your hearts are at, you're not going to want to come when the day's ready, when the kingdom of God is there. The story is a heavy one because the people in the room are like, they're like an Israelite's Israelite. They're, they're a Jew's Jew. They are the people of God, and they know it because they're the religious leaders. And the story Jesus tells is, the master of this party invites those people first. And he says, all of them alike make excuses not to come. I love the fact, too, that two of them ask to be excused as if they're asking the person hosting the party for permission not to come. It, it, again, going back to the wedding, it'd be like if there's been a lot of weddings in our church, so we all kind of know how this works, right? You can imagine it being your wedding or just a wedding you've attended. But imagine it being your wedding and you've invited these people to come and they've said yes. And then on the day, they're like, hey, I, I just got this new car, and I need to drive it, and so I can't come. Please be okay with that. Please excuse me. Right? Like, are you kidding? Seriously? Like, imagine how you would feel. That's the anger that the master of the house has towards these people. He's like, you said yes, I've been preparing, and now that the moment's here, you have a field that will be there tomorrow, that's been there before. You have oxen that probably aren't going to die in the next 48 hours. Like, seriously. And so what he's uncovering is the fact that like, these proud, self-centered people have created priorities in their life that are way more important to them than this banquet. Right? Here's three reasons why the humble people, why a humble person will be at the banquet in the kingdom of God and why a proud person won't. The first is this. Humble people can accept the free invitation of the master of the feast. A proud person cannot. The invitation to come to the feast, the invitation to be a part of the kingdom of God, the gospel invitation is by nature free. And a proud person cannot accept a free gift. And I'll, I have an example that I think will apply to every single person in here. So let you guys kind of put yourself in the shoes, all right? Have you, at Christmas time, ever been given a gift from someone you didn't expect to receive a gift from? Okay? Especially like a nice one. Not like they get me a card and like whatever. But they've got you like, I don't know, a 50-pound voucher to dinner somewhere or something. What are the first thought that goes through your head? Because I'll tell you what mine is. It's, oh, no. Now I gotta get them something. And it's gotta be comparable value. But I didn't budget for them. I don't think we're that good of friends. What do I do? How do I get this? Christmas is only a week away. You just start, you can't accept the gift and be like, thank you. That was so kind. Immediately I go to a place of stress because I've gotta repay. And I've gotta like, you know, make it even somehow. Because I'm a proud person. I'm a self-centered person. You know? I think, and then proud people can't receive free things. There's two ways this pride shows up in our lives. The first is we are so proud that we think we can pay for it or earn it or do something to make the gospel worth it. We either, we're either think we're worthy of it or that there's something we can do to either buy it, compliment it, something, right? For the longest time, my concept of what the gospel meant in my own life was that I'm a pretty good person who's going to do my best, but I can't be perfect, and that's why Jesus died, to kind of cover my deficiency. Not even the good stuff I do is pretty worthless and pretty self-centered, and so really there's nothing I can bring to this, and it's just a free gift anyway, so there's no expectation for me to bring anything to the table because this gift's freely given to all who can, in humility, accept it. 
The other version of pride looks like this. I'm too unworthy to receive this gift, and therefore I won't take it. And it's a pride that looks like humility, but it's not, because it's still self-centered. It's expressed like this. Yeah, I know I haven't been coming to church or MC in a while. I'm just trying to figure out some stuff in my life right now. My mental health's not great. My relationship with my girlfriend or boyfriend is like this. I feel like I haven't been reading the word enough. I feel like kind of distant from God, and I'm just trying to sort things out. Nope. The invitation is to come now, freely. I was listening, um, doing a little bit of like, research for this, and sometimes I do just like, listen to sermons on the same passage to kind of like, get ideas. Hopefully not to plagiarize, but whatever. I'm going to credit the guy. Um, I listened to a sermon Kel- Tim Keller did on this, and one of the things he said was, the feast of God is not a restaurant, and it's not a potluck dinner. And by that he meant, like, it's not a meal we come to and then pay at the end. However graciously we've been hosted, we don't then be like, oh, well, here's for your trouble, right? Or it's not a potluck dinner where we all just kind of chip in and bring something. Oh, you're having dinner? That's great. I'll bring, you know, I'll bring a side. I'll bring a dessert. No, you don't have to. Oh, no, 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 it's not a big deal. I'll bring a bottle of wine. No, don't. Bring anything. It's all prepared for you. No, no, I insist, right? Like, it's this idea that, like, I have to contribute. And that's not the kingdom of God. That's not the invitation that we have in Christ. Okay, so first one, humble people can freely accept the free invitation of the master of the feast. Proud people cannot accept it. Secondly, humble people eagerly await the day the feast will come, and proud people do not. Really, it should be more like self-centered people do not. A humble person humbles themselves under the master's schedule. They enter the feast, and entering the feast, their priority is the, is the, is the meal. On the host's terms, on the host's schedule, they don't come in and say, hey, I'm really glad that you've invited me. We'll go back to the wedding example. I'm really glad you invited me to your wedding. The thing is, Ireland play Wales at three. So, like, is there any way we can kind of move the cocktail hour back to, like, maybe, like, 5 o'clock or whatever? You know, right? Like, you're trying to set the turn. That's not how it works. That's not how these, you wouldn't ever do that. And if someone said that to you, I'd be like, hey, enjoy the match. Don't come. Right? That's more important than my wedding day. Go do your important thing. We'll figure our friendship out in a couple weeks. Right? That's how that would work, practically. There needs to be a level of humility to understand that the host of the meal sets everything, priority, menu, schedule, all of it. Proud people don't eagerly await the feast, and they don't allow the host to be the host. If you look at the excuses the guests make, They make them because they've set other priorities in their life. I've bought a field. I've got oxen. I have a wife. Not, I have a wife, can't she come? But I have a wife. I'm not coming. They knew that the feast was being prepared because they said yes. Yet, they didn't make themselves ready for the day. Their own pleasures, their own priorities, their relationships eclipsed the priority of the feast. Does that make sense? Now, As with the parables of Jesus, we can ask the question of why. I don't know. It could be that they became impatient, waiting for the day to come. It could be that they became disinterested in going at all. It could be that they were distracted by other things going on. Whatever the reason, the banquet was no longer the priority. Something else was. Self-centered people create their own priorities and desires and very quickly put them to the top of whatever list exists. Instead, humble people eagerly await the banquet with a joyful anticipation. I, um, what year was this? 2014. Lauren and I led a a summer mission, a, a summer, yeah, summer mission with students from the States to Paris for six weeks. And on one of the days, 
we went around Paris doing a bike tour, which is a lot of fun, right? It's romantic to be biking around the beautiful, most beautiful city in the world or whatever. And, and it's just a lovely evening, clear skies, a long, it's a long sunset because it's summertime, it's just that whole kind of vibe, right? And as we're biking around and kind of seeing the sights, the Arc de Triomphe, the Champs-Élysées, I'm butchering all these French words because I think Philly Lawrence not in the room, I, we start noticing that there's these people that are dressed all in white, walking around, there's two of them here, there's three of them there, six of them there, and then we started passing some like green spaces and we see like a lot of them just like picnicking out, they're just kind of like hanging out. And we're like, what is happening? And so we get to a place and Lauren asks them like, hey, what, what's going on? Like we've noticed a lot of people wearing white and kind of wandering around and is there like a thing, like, is it like a concert or what's going on? And they explain to her that there's this thing called, again, butchering the French, dîner en blanc, which means the dinner in white. And apparently, once upon a time in 1988, some French socialite had come back to Paris after being away for a while and done this dinner and the, the kind of idea behind it was like, you have to wear white. And he would, the day of, tell people where the meal would be at. And so he, um, everyone got the invitation that morning, and then that evening would go meet at this place and do dinner. And it was a picnic, whatever, so everyone brings their own picnic stuff and white tablecloths and whatever. And over time, it became kind of like a plus one thing over time. And so I think in 2018, there were 17,000 people at the Diné en Blanc in France, and they do it in different places. And so the night we were doing it, we uh, found out. Um, and so the way they did it in modern day now is everyone knows that it's happening. They all prepare. They prepare how they dress. They prepare the food they're bringing. They prepare the picnic and the white tablecloth. And there's candelabra. They do it French. Um, and it's very beautiful and very just lovely evening. And so the look, and then they wait. They kind of picnic and wait to find out where it's going to be. And then they all go there and all set up, and it's this whole thing. And so while we're doing that, we, we, we bike around. They're all just like picnicking around. We have no idea where it's going to be because obviously we weren't invited. And we, uh, their bike tour ends with us taking kind of the river cruise up the Seine um, around like where the Eiffel Tower is. The lights, you know, going crazy, and that's all fun, and then coming back and whatever. It turns out that that location for the 2014 was the five bridges that we ended up going under to the Eiffel Tower and back. And so we keep passing under these bridges and everyone's up there like waving and having a grand old time and champagne's popping and there's balloons and there's sparklers and they wave to us and we wave to them. And a couple of people actually like kind of tossed bottles down to the people on the, on the boat, which was a lot of fun. Um, our students weren't allowed to drink, so that was sad. But this is a picture of it, right? This is, this is the one they did in front of the Eiffel Tower. This, this is 2014. So we went under one of these bridges. Those are rows of tables of people all wearing white. And I think it's such a cool picture of what joyful anticipation looks like. Today's the day we're going to find out where it's going to be. They've done it in a whole bunch of really cool places around the city. Obviously, each year it changes. Um, and that, this picture is what I imagine the joyful anticipation we have for the day, for our own day, when we go to our own banquet. Because there's preparation involved, right? There's, there's getting ready for it. There's an eagerness. The party beforehand, if you saw the people that were kind of in the parks and stuff getting ready, they were already having a good time. The party didn't start once they got to the bridge. The party started in the anticipation of this. Does that make sense? And so when we think about the banquet of the kingdom of God, humble people eagerly await that. Proud people don't care and start creating other priorities and having other things that are more important. The question that we must ask ourselves is, do we wait with eagerness for the announcement of the banquet? For when it's ready, are we preparing and getting ready for that feast? Or is there something else more important in our lives? I was thinking about it in terms of my own life and like the life I want to live. And I was like, if, if Jesus calls me home today, am I okay with that? Or do I want to see my kids get married first? Right? Um, if Jesus calls me home today, am I ready to go? Or do I want to reach a certain point in my career or travel to this location? Or, right, like, I don't know what it is. But, like, the ideal Christian life looks a whole lot like a non-Christian's ideal life where you just kind of everything goes well and then you die in your sleep peacefully. Except a Christian is like, and then maybe I'll go to heaven. And a non-Christian is like, man, it's nothing, so who cares? It's the same thing. There's no joy. There's no, there's no difference. There's no anticipation. There's no preparation. There's no eager, hopeful joy. 
for most Christians because we're content to create priorities in the meantime that are more important. Thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, humble people can celebrate the commonness of the feast, and proud people cannot. The whole dinner that had happened, these three episodes that happened before, Jesus uncovering their pride and self-centeredness, but he's basically doing it by asking a question, would you come to a feast where the other guests are the poor and the lame and the crippled and the blind? If you're throwing a feast, are these the people you invite? Is this the guest? Are these the guests you want to be around? Because they're the guests that are going to be at the feast in the kingdom of God. One of the hard, hard, hard truths of the gospel is that the gospel is for the humble and the humiliated and the least and the last and the lost. And many of us live our lives sort of appreciating that while also trying to not be that. And also, in a lot of ways, trying to get away from that. And so we become these like divided people who are in the room like the Pharisees, and we recognize this guy was dropsy, but we're kind of like, please go away. I don't want to deal with this. I don't know what to do with you. I don't want to be like you. The reality is, the closer we are to the top of society, the harder it is to receive the gospel. And that's just kind of proven historically. The church has always been low income in a lot of ways. It's been for the poor. It's been for the widow. It's been for the orphan. It's been for the socially outcast. It's been for the sojourner. It's been for the foreigner. And this story, Jesus tells, it's for the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And then he goes a step further and says, go out to the highways and hedges and bring them into. And the Jews would have heard, Gentiles. Those people Yes, those people. Me and you, we're those people. That's the beauty of the gospel for us. Jesus, in Luke 18, not to do a sermon before we do the sermon later on in the series, but in Luke 18, he, we find the story of the rich young ruler who tells Jesus, I've done all of these things right in my life, and Jesus says, one thing you still lack, sell all you have, give it to the poor, come follow me. And the man turns away sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus, seeing, that he, uh, seeing how he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. The gospel power flows towards the poor and the weak and the marginalized. Proud people don't think they're any of those things. Humble people recognize that they are. In the Beatitudes, who does Jesus say is blessed? The poor in spirit, those who mourn, who have experienced grief, tragedy. The meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, those who are persecuted and reviled and spoken evil against because of Jesus. That is who the kingdom is for. That is where the gospel goes. The Christian gospel is humbling. It is humiliating. It requires becoming humble and humiliated. The reason why in most accounts of Jesus that you see people who quickly respond to Jesus are the ones who have nothing. There's nothing to give up. I don't have anything. And the invitation of Jesus to come follow him, or the invitation of Jesus is like, would you like to be healed? Is an easy yes. Because where else can I go? It's the rich, it's the ones who have, that have this question to ask themselves. Am I willing to be humble and humbled to receive the gospel? And the reality is that for all of us in the room, those of us with iPhones in our pockets, that's us. That's the hard part. But the good part is Jesus says, 
What's impossible with man is possible with God. There's a quote I heard once. I wish I'd spent most of this week trying to find who said it. I don't know who said it. I heard it in a sermon once. It stuck with me for a really long time. And I wish I could give credit where it's due, but I'm just going to give credit to Anonymous. But the quote is this. A man can either be humble before God or be humbled by God. There will come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And the choice we have to make is if we will humble ourselves now and welcome that day with joy or whether we will find that day and realize we've missed it. We will be humbled. We will be taken from our seat that we put ourselves in and moved to the other end of the table in front of everyone. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, the Apostle Paul says this, and I think this verse resonates with me because I think if we all looked at our own hearts, we would understand that we're all just as needy as any sinner, that there's no one that's going to be at the table and the banquet in the kingdom of God that's any better or worse than us. Paul says this, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And I think if we were all honest about our own hearts, which I don't even think we can be, but as I continue to live life, I uncover more and more of my own sinfulness. And God in his grace probably doesn't show it to me all at one time so that I'm not overwhelmed, right? But I think if we all knew ourselves in time, we would know ourselves obviously better than we would know anybody else. And we would probably fight over the fact, even with Paul, like, hey, yeah, you're bad, sure. But you don't know me. You don't know what Christ has saved me from. I'm the foremost, right? I think, I think this should be all of our verses. Have mercy on me, O God, a sinner, Jesus says in another, in another parable of a, of a tax collector, when a Pharisee next to him is like, thank God I'm not like these guys. We need to understand that we're as worse as any sinner. By way of encouragement, there's another story in Luke chapter 19 of a rich man who does become part of the kingdom of God. His name is Zacchaeus. And he was a tax collector and a swindler. And he was a short man. And so Jesus is walking through the city and Zacchaeus is up in a tree just so we can get a glimpse of Jesus. Jesus stops and looks at him. And he says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. I must stay at your house today. Look at Zacchaeus' response. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, the people around Jesus, they grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. Willingly. Jesus doesn't tell him to do it. He just does it. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus says this, Today, salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Is what we titled our sermon series appropriately. The question we must ask ourselves this week Am I humble enough to enter the kingdom of God? When the day comes and dinner is ready, is my heart in a place to say, Yes, I'm ready to go? I've been waiting for this day for a really, really long time. Thank you, Jesus. Let's eat. Or, like the Pharisees, who think they're going to be there. Do we have other priorities that supersede the banquet? Do we have other things that have distracted us to keep us from waiting with joyful anticipation? Do we look at people, the least, the last, and the lost around us, and say, man, at least I'm not like this sinner. Or if I say, man, I can't wait to have dinner with them. They know Jesus like I do. There's a day that's going to come where we're going to have a feast with Jesus. In the meantime, we do this on Sundays to remind us of that day and to, with joyful anticipation, look forward to the day when we're going to be in the kingdom of heaven with Jesus, eating a really good meal that we don't got to pay for we don't got to bring anything to. We just got to show up. We close each week with communion. 
which is a meal together that reminds us of the gospel, specifically of the saving work of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. We do this because it's the foundation for all of the rest of our faith. Everything we read, everything we learn, everything we talked about this morning has significance because of what this represents. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And when he gave thanks, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we want to do that every week. In Christ, God has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. We have an invitation to the table. If you're a believer, this meal's for you. I'm going to, second, we're going to pray for it and then take it together. If you're not a believer, my encouragement to you is not to come take the meal, not eat the bread and drink the wine. My encouragement is rather to say yes to the RSVP. Say yes to Jesus. To accept the invitation to eat at the table in the kingdom of God. Is this something that you want to talk more about? Come find me. Come find Andrew. Come talk to whoever you came with. Um, we'd love to talk to you about that. Um, I'm going to pray for our meal now, and then we're going to take it. God, as we come to the table for communion, as we take this bread, like Jesus, we thank you for it, for your body that was broken for us. And as we drink this cup, which is the blood of your covenant, of a new covenant, God, we remember the work of Christ on the cross. Thank you, thank you so much that we have an invitation to come eat at your table. And in your grace and by your grace, may we be humble enough to say yes when the day comes. God, you oppose the proud. You give grace to the humble. May we all be humble. It's in your name I pray.